Professor Lapira, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start with your background? You know, where'd you start off, the arc of your career so far, and where you are now? Sure. I um, started off in the late 90s after graduating college, uh, working on Capitol Hill uh, for a member of Congress from, from Pennsylvania, um, both in the district and in, in Washington. So I got a sort of a feel through the both sides of the coin. Uh, um, from there, and, and uh, um, I had some really interesting experiences working on the Hill. Uh, um, but at, at the time, I always knew I wanted to pursue an, an academic career. So went on to graduate school to study Congress and then uh, um, met my, who would become my, my uh, PhD advisor, who was working on a project on lobbying and, and public policy. And I really became fascinated by that because it spoke a little bit more to my day-to-day -day experiences of having worked in Congress that I knew so little about, about many of the lobbyists and folks who I met. Um, and so, so started uh, uh, doing some research in that area. And um, before I finished my PhD, I got a job working at the Center for Responsive Politics, now known as uh, Open Secrets, that has long published information on uh, uh, federal campaign finance uh, um, projects. And at the time, I was hired to come on to create their lobbying database and later their revolving door database. So I spent a couple of years building up that, uh, um, um, those databases based on some of the experience I had in my, in my own research. And then, uh, and then moved on to my academic career and became a professor. And, and I've now been here at James Madison University um, in my 11th year. And um, much of the work that I have done uh, uh, stems from those experiences. So much of my uh, 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 published work and my teaching where I talk about lobbying and interest group politics relies on the lobbying data uh, that I produce. And that has uh, um, then I've also sort of relied on my own background as a congressional staffer in the past uh, to, to look at some questions about uh, uh, legislative capacity and, and information processing. Um, and then that brought me to, in 2019, uh, um, I was the American Political Science Association Public Service Fellow at the House Committee, uh, Select Committee on Modernization of Congress, um, where I got to work on some of these issues about staffing and do some internal research there uh, and some consulting. Um, so now I'm, I'm back here in, in Harrisburg uh, on campus and I do my teaching and research and then recently just started as uh, the co-editor in chief of uh, the journal Interest Groups and Advocacy. Excellent. So, you know, I think you're one of the few academics I've come across who's worked uh, for a member, but in the district as well as the, uh, as well as the, uh, you know, the DC office. Can you talk about what, what experience did you actually have when you were a staffer, both in the district and uh, in, in DC? Yeah, well, absolutely. In, when I was working in the district, it just so happened to be uh, um, 1998. And that is, of course, when uh, a Congress impeached President Clinton. So uh, um, as a relatively entry-level staffer dealing mostly with constituent concerns, whether it be sort of immigration issues or social security or, or, or whatnot, intervened by uh, uh, phone calls from constituents calling up to express their opinions and uh, to learn what the what the member of Congress was was uh, how he was voting and and what his intentions were, and you know providing that that general constituent service. Of course, during the impeachment uh, era, it's sort of everything sort of screeched to a halt, and uh, that dominated uh, all of public discussion, whether it was the comedy news shows at, uh, comedy shows at night or or, or the news, um, and and. Uh, very similarly, it dominated my time in, in the office. I would walk in, uh, the phone would already be ringing at 7.30 or 8 a.m. and wouldn't stop until we left at 6.30 uh, 
at night. Uh, um, and uh, it, it eventually became uh, a, a real challenge and that, that I didn't feel like I was really seeking my teeth into sort of uh, interesting work. And, and it was just so happened to be at that time that my, my boss knew it and asked me to come down to, to, to DC and uh, to work for him where it was a real experience of trial by fire. My very first week there, um, a subcommittee that my boss was on was having a, a legislative hearing on what would later become uh, the 1999 Graham Leach Bliley Financial Services Modernization Act, which fundamentally changed how the financial services industry is, is regulated, as you uh, surely know. Um, but not only did I get to start there, I was my, because my boss was on one of the primary committees that had jurisdiction on the bill, he went all the way to the conference committee which is a rare event in a legislative staffer's life, that I was able to really uh, sink my teeth in and observe how, uh, what that sort of behind the scenes process that you don't learn about in a textbook on Congress about how things really work uh, um, and, uh, and, and about building relationships with, with stakeholders and understanding how different members of Congress are gonna approach similar problems differently. Uh, um, so it was a really great experience, even though I was, again, a relatively junior uh, junior staff member, to be a fly on the wall in that conference room, uh, in that conference committee room when the Secretary of Treasury was there and, and uh, the White House Chief of Staff would pop his head in. And, and uh, um, so it was, it was a, a really interesting experience to get both these sort of on the ground uh, uh, communication with uh, um, uh, constituents who, who don't call a member of Congress's office with good news and uh, um, all the way up through these sort of uh, uh, really sort of complex procedures and, and substantive debates about figuring out, well, how do we go about you know, solving these problems that it's clear that everyone need, knows that we, they, they need to be solved, but you know, what exactly is the solution? So why did you wind up ultimately going to academia you know, within a university setting rather than doing a think tank uh, gig or uh, staying on the Hill? Yeah, that, that's a great, uh, great, great question. I often tell my students that I, I'm, I, I, uh, I left a low paying job on Capitol Hill and took a 60% pay cut to go to graduate school. Uh, um, I think I always had it in my mind that uh, um, that was just simply what I wanted to pursue. And, and it was I, I, the way I know myself and the way I work, there is a certain amount of autonomy that comes with working in the, the academic world. Um, so I, 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 the way I looked at it was I moved from a job where I was signing my boss's names on letters and memos uh, um, to one where I put my own name on my own work product. And, and uh, so that made a, a, a lot of difference. Now, of course, that also means that my work ends up in dusty old academic journals that most people don't read. Uh, um, but I think one change in uh, um, the academic world and, and social science generally and political science uh, in particular is that there has been a real change in emphasis of trying to translate what we do in our discipline and, and studying things like Congress and the presidency and trying to translate that into uh, a, a more general uh, consumption uh, for a, a broader audience to, to hopefully have at least some impact change uh, the direction of some conversations about how government works and, and how politics works. And, and uh, um, so I found that move uh, uh, in, in, uh, over the years to be uh, very rewarding. Right, well, let's move on to your, you know, sort of the, what I call a broad range of your research. You know, what are the broad questions you're interested in, in terms of either Congress or politics, generally speaking, and then we'll dive down into the Congress way and stuff. Sure. 
Um, I would say, well, generally speaking, I studied politics that happens inside the Beltway, right? So, uh, which is very different from you know, sort of uh, political parties and elections and the media, all of which is important, but my focus tends to be on uh, political elites, right? Who, pe people whose job it is to be engaged in the world of public policy and, and in politics. That's about as broad or as general as, as I could describe it. What that really means in, in particular is uh, um, I've, I've, most of the research I've done is, is looked at uh, uh, organized interest groups, in, uh, particularly in, in US national politics, and the individual lobbyists that they hire, and sort of uh, thinking about lobbyists, uh, um, their individual characteristics, their professional background, uh, their education, uh, um, other human assets that they might bring to their job. Um, so, so generally there, uh, that, that's been a, a, a focus of, of what I've uh, uh, tried to, to contribute and learn about. And, and some of the questions that I'll, I, I've looked at there are sort of what's the relationship between uh, the priorities that the government has and how that actually draws lobbyists into the process, right? So we often think about lobbying as uh, these sort of uh, uh, lobbyists or these interlocutors, right, from, from the outside telling the Senate and the House what to do, and it doesn't really work that way. Lobbyists tend to follow the lead of, uh, of, uh, of the partisans inside Congress and in the White House. I've also looked at, uh, um, in, in a lot of this work, because uh, of trying to collect data from publicly available uh, disclosure reports, uh, um, along the way, you learn a lot about what they don't tell you. Right, so some of my work has also looked at sort of uh, uh, the effectiveness of lobbying, uh, transparency, and, and disclosure. And then uh, inside Congress, uh, the, the predominant academic view of Congress, and for, for good reason, is, is really to think of Congress as a set of institutions and norms and rules, uh, um, and then in which you know a selected elected members of Congress try to manipulate those uh, those institutions for. For, for their own uh, uh, re-election and, and political and partisan reasons. But what is often I thought has been missing from that is really looking under the, what's the day-to-day -day operational uh, 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 basis of Congress, where Congress as an, an actual organization, as an employer, uh, um, not just as a, uh, 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 the first branch and uh, uh, first constitutional branch uh, of government, but really how does it work on, under the hood? And, uh, um, I came to that, this largely speaking and broadly speaking of legislative capacity and, and trying to understand uh, personnel and staff in, in Congress was directly related to my work on, uh, on lobbyists, because who are the lobbyists? They're people who used to work in government. Um, so my first book was on uh, so-called revolving door uh, lobbying with Trey Thomas. And uh, one of the conclusions we reached there that that if if we are concerned about this this very close relationship between lobbyists and and the and and Congress in particular, uh, um, we need to understand a little bit more of why does Congress need to rely so much on K Street and uh, and in these sort of uh, these lobbyists that have special access to, to members of Congress, and that's largely coming from the fact that uh, and I think we can get into this is. Uh, um, because Congress is largely divested in its own internal resources. Uh, um, and then I, I think a, a third sort of area, uh, which I, uh, uh, I'm, I'm interested in is uh, generally speaking, these political professionals inside uh, uh, the Beltway, uh, um, 
they are highly trained, highly experienced, uh, um, um, and, and, and typically very motivated by public service. Uh, the question then becomes is how do they go about using the vast amounts of information uh, that's around in order to uh, uh, offer advice or to make policy decisions or to communicate those those decisions to certain publics uh, um, and, and whatnot. There's the, the 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 problem in Washington is not that there's not enough information about how to solve problems. It's that there's too much information, and uh, um, what we don't know then is exactly how do uh, political elites winnow that information down to what's most useful uh, and and effective. Well, let's start off with the with the work on lobbying. Um, I think that's was their, your earliest work. So why don't we, you know, if you could share with us, you know, what questions really did you have about lobbying? What was the fundamental problem you were trying to solve? And did you find any interesting outcomes from that work? Yeah, sure. I, I think for, uh, for, for decades, I think the focus of uh, uh, um, social science research on lobbying and interest group politics more generally, economists look at this stuff, sociologists look at this stuff political scientists. Um, the, the, the focus of investigation has typically been at the organization or the group level. And, uh, um, and that's revealed a lot of uh, telling information about how our political system works. Predominated, uh, it, it's, it tends to be dominated by uh, for-profit interests, whether they're going to be lobbying directly or through professional associations and, and trade associations and whatnot, but it's overwhelmingly having to do with this uh, uh, um, firms in the marketplace, and it's not only nonprofits and, and, and certain policy advocates. And and uh, um, but what where I thought there was really a dearth of knowledge about how all of this stuff works was sort of one level down from the organization, the individual people who actually engage in these lobbying activities on behalf of these organizations. There's a lot of really interesting questions there that, you know, how do they go about faithfully representing the interests of these organizations or these organizations members or shareholders or, or officers? Uh, um, you know, as in any sort of complex organization, you're always going to have some agency cost and agency loss when you're representing somebody else. And, and we didn't really know a lot about individual lobbyists, right? So, so what drove me to, uh, uh, to, to, to some of these questions was really to learn more. Who, who are the lobbyists, right? So uh, to try to move away from this perspective of thinking that lobbyists were simply interchangeable, you know, semiconductors of, of representation for the, the interests that they represented. And they're actually human beings and some have, uh, and they have different characteristics and qualities and, and, uh, um, they, and, and lobbying is not a one size fits all kind of, activity, right? So, uh, um, so started uh, drilling down and, and trying to learn a little bit more, more about these. So, so what ultimately became a you know, series of papers and, and, and my, my first book on, on revolving door lobbyists was really about individual lobbyists, whether they had previously worked in the government or not. And uh, um, so what we did was uh, we got a long sort of list of, a, of took a ran big random sample uh, of lobbyists from one year and uh, um, over the course of a couple of years uh, brought on some student research assistants that uh, um, who we asked to essentially Google stalk these lobbyists right and find out everything you can ab about them because the lobbying disclosure reports does not include does not include a resume right? it doesn't include their biography it just includes a name 
And so what we try to do is effectively reconstruct their resumes behind the scenes and, and create a data set out of it. And then ask, well, well then what, what can that tell us? And of course, that had us focus on uh, um, a, a couple of different things. The first and foremost big thing that we, we need to understand about how lobbying works is that it's very different uh, uh, depending on the, the sort of professional context. Some lobbyists collect one paycheck from one client, their employer, right? They work in-house, not unlike an in-house accountant or, a, or counsel. And uh, they have a very different job compared to a lobbyist who might work at a lobbying firm or a law firm who might have dozens of clients with competing interests, um, or at least a variety uh, of interests. So right there, we can simply, it doesn't take too much thought to realize that the, the qualities of the person who's going to be working in-house and, and can be working as a consultant can be very different, right? So the in-house type person is going to be more of a sort of a policy wonk, uh, uh, you know, a substance expert. Uh, um, and they're also going to sort of have to cover a lot of bases in, in, internally. Whereas somebody at a, a, a consulting firm or a lobbying or law firm, uh, um, they or their their professional qualities are going to be more about what they know about the, the sort of inside process. You know, how does the White House really work on the inside, or how does the Senate Democratic Majority Leader, uh, you know, how do they really function, uh, um, or, or a particular committee? That's that tends to be much more valuable on on that side than uh, um, than, than literally having the the nuts and bolts of say technocratic healthcare policy or, or whatnot. So, um, so that was one major distinction. And the second one, uh, naturally, which was largely became in the mid 2000s, there was a lot of discussion in, in, in the public about the role of lobbyists and relationship, the close relationship of, of lobbyists with members of Congress, especially if they were former staffers. Um, uh, so I'm thinking particularly around the Jack Abramoff scandal of the, the mid 2000s, a lot of journalists really, and Policymakers and lawmakers started asking questions about, well, do you, you know, should we stop this the spinning of the so-called revolving door? Is there is this just sort of setting up a, a, a natural conflicts of interest, right? So we tried to drill down into these individual characteristics. Now that we had a, a bunch of lobbyist resumes, to ask, well, you know, do they behave differently? Are they different kinds of lobbyists? Uh, um, and of course, it's difficult to know because we're not in the room when they're actually engaged in lobbying. We're trying to extract as much information as we can from their uh, public disclosure reports, which is you know, thin information. Uh, um, but what we did reveal was that they, they indeed are very different, right? So that uh, um, somebody working, uh, somebody without previous government experience is usually going to be an expert in an industry, or they'll have a certain expertise in a particular area of law or, or, or public policy. Uh, um, and they're much more likely to have a very narrow focus, uh, a narrow portfolio in, in which they're going to be engaged and they're going to have a very small network of, uh, of, of professionals that they interact with. Compare that to somebody who had worked in government before, even though say working on the Hill or in the White House, you, you're gonna pick up something about policy substance along the way, the real value is not necessarily that you could pick up the phone and, and, and call your old boss, but it's being able to advise your clients uh, without picking up the phone and calling your own boss of telling them most likely what was going to happen. Most people, so we developed this idea in the book that um, lobbying is not necessarily sort of arm twisting and, and uh, uh, influence per se, but it acts more like 
an insurance policy, right? An interest group is going to hire different kinds of lobbyists to cover different kinds of risks. That uh, I mean, this is why it makes sense that a lot of uh, sort of corporate interests are going to hire lobbyists, right? That they they want to have the intelligence internally because they have business planning to do, or they have some kind of policy goal, and so they're going to hire these different kinds of lobbyists to achieve to cover different kinds of problems or, or risks. So. Uh, um, what we, I think that the bottom line, what we hope to, to learn from there is that we're less concerned about these sort of insider connections because, frankly, any lobbyist can create connections give, given due time. But really what the, 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 the distinguishing factor of somebody who has government experience is that they have that sort of innate knowledge about uh, the informal norms and practices uh, um, about how policymakers go about making uh, decisions in, on very controversial issues that can be touchy. So, uh, um, so that I think was one of sort of the big sort of takeaways of, of by what we learn from drilling down beyond just the organization and looking at uh, characteristics of individual lobbyists and advocates. So the from from the economics point of view for the individual lobbyists, you know, the way that they make money. Um, either through client, you know, multi-client or single-client kind of relationships. It's always been a kind of a curious question about effectiveness, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, how do how do the their clients know what they're getting? And you know, I would assume that. I mean, my guess is that ninety percent of that spend is wasted, right? Maybe more. Probably. Um, you know, because the, there's this such a information asymmetry between the the lobbyist and the client. You know, did you get into that at all in, in your work? And what did you find in terms of what do people think they're paying for and what do they actually get at the end of the day? Yeah, no, I, I think that's that, that's a really key question, right? Uh, um, it, it's, I think, very difficult for one lobbyist to go back to one client and say, I changed a law for you, right? Because uh, Congress is a collective decision-making body um, with two competing parties that are concerned about re-election, not necessarily what one organization needs or wants out of the policy process. So it's, I think, a real challenge for, for lobbyists to show that, that particular value, right? So they can occasionally show uh, uh, or, or demonstrate very sort of incremental outputs, if you will. We got so many meetings on Capitol Hill or, or we produced, uh, you know, uh, um, you know we, we got some language in an amendment at a, at a committee. But those, those things are relatively far and few between, you know, 365 days in the year that, that those things are not happening all, all the time, which is why I think our analogy or theoretic analogy with insurance is good, right? So I own homeowner's insurance in case someday there's a hurricane that hits my house. I don't need it today. There's not going to be a hurricane today, right? But if I don't have it, that's when it becomes a problem. So I think the real value that that lobbyists are are uh, are, are going to be demonstrating is that you need to spend that money in advance and have them when you need it under uncertain circumstances when nobody has a crystal ball to predict when the when the government is going to drop the next shoe on in the industry or uh, um, when some sort of outside factor disrupts the public policy process or simply a new law needs to be addressed or created or some kind of problem needs to happen you only going to get anything out of the system if you already have the lobbyists ahead of time, which is quite literally why, uh, uh, especially multi-client contract lobbyists work on a retainer basis, right? Because they quite literally can't demonstrate on a day-to-day -day basis what it is that they're, uh, uh, they're, they're proving or, or they're, they're delivering 
uh, for their client. But I would, you know, you point to it and say it's very rare for uh, organizations to pull out of those consulting contracts. They're getting something out of it, and uh, typically, what that is, it's it's going to be the the sort of insider ear to the ground about what's actually happening in Washington. Uh, a CEO in California can't afford to read in, in the paper what happened in Congress the day after, right? They, they need to know that we can, we can advance what hearing is happening, or is there going to be a vote on a, a bill that's going to affect them, or, uh, um, you know, is there, a, are they going to close that tax loophole that, that they rely on, what have you. So those are the kinds of things that it's not so much that they might, that lobbyists are going to be changing the course of events in the policy process, it's their informational value that uh, um, that their clients rely on to reduce their uncertainty. And, and, and as a business person yourself, I, I think you probably know that, that the number one thing you want to reduce is your uncertainty about about how uh, um, um, about your business landscape. And and uh, um, it's just one way of, of looking at it. And from mostly from these sort of large associations and, and corporations, the uh, there's about three to four billion dollars a year spent on lobbying at the federal level it's probably much more than that but at least that's what's what's disclosed um you know we spend 15 billion dollars on valentine's day gifts right so so it really is a drop in the bucket i think for for companies and associations to 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 be able to obtain that intelligence uh, um that's going to help feed their uh, their day-to-day -day operations and, and their business planning so that's really the value i think that that they can offer is um, again, which is why revolving door lobbyists are are so much more valuable because they can offer some insight to the the, the moving parts of of Congress and the White House that you can't see from the outside. It's interesting you talk about the insurance value of the lobbying, whereas you know a lot of people's perception is more like the shaping concept. You know, you you I want this done. I want this in the bill. I want this legislation passed. Uh, so is that largely a myth or does that happen in certain circumstances or is there a specialization to do that? You know, how does that play out? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I don't think it's a, it's, it's a myth per se. Uh, this certainly does happen. Um, but to, to the best of our knowledge, really how it works is lobbyists act almost as adjunct staff or as outside consultants to members of Congress, right? So, Typically, lobbyists are really only going to be reaching out to people who they already agree with, right? So they're not changing their minds so much. Um, but there's a really uh, a, a useful theory out there called the lobbying is legislative subsidy from Rick Hall and Alan Deardorff that, that basically says that what, a, what a, an interest group and what a lobbyist is trying to do is to walk into a legislator's office and offer them what they call a matching grant, right? If you put 5% of your time on this problem, I'll make up for the 95% remaining with my expertise. We'll go talk to the relevant constituencies. We'll, you know, fill out stakeholders for you as long as you pen, spend 5% of your time on it. 5% of their time is better than 0% of their time. So to the extent that they're influencing the process, it's changing their priorities and how they spent and how they allocate their time and resources inside Congress. It's not necessarily changing their mind. I mean, they're always going to, you know, if the bill comes up, they're going to vote along with that, right? But it's that if the bill comes up, part of the legislative process that is uh, a lot more arcane and a lot more complex. Uh, um, and it's where I think lobbyists can, can be valuable. So, uh, so lobbyists have two audiences, right? One is their, 
their clients or the members of their organization or their shareholders that they're trying to feed information to. Um, but they also have their targets on Capitol Hill or the White House or at, at, at you know, uh, Department of Agriculture or what, what, what have you. And uh, um, they have to be useful to them. They have to be partners in the policy process and, and they work as allies or, or as adjuncts. Uh, um, so to say that most lobbyists are, are, are really information providers back to their clients or are offering some kind of uh, uh, insurance, it's it also th those sort of retainer contracts or you know uh, working in in house at, at an organization with a Washington office also buys them the time to uh, move the needle slightly forward on a, a very slow pace for the their, whatever their policy priorities might be. So uh, um, so it, it it works in both directions there. Um, but I think that whole story is very different than sort of the folk theory that uh, um, that that lobbyists. Or sort of, you know, uh, there's a famous political cartoon out there where a member of Congress is saying that lobbyists don't tell me what to do, where it's a, the pencil is written by the lobbyist, right? Uh, um, and uh, uh, which I think is brilliant, but it's also completely wrong. It's not really accurate in, in describing uh, um, what role uh, lobbyists play, because otherwise, members of Congress or, or their offices, thousands of lobbyists could walk in the door on any given day. They have to decide which ones are we going to let through the door. And, and, um, and, and the ones they're going to let through the door are the ones that are going to be most useful to them. And, and um, so I think uh, uh, this, this story is, is, is consistent on, on both ends, but really runs counter sort of the popular mythology of what lobbying is. So maybe that leads us to the next big topic, which is congressional capacity, right? Because yeah. if you know, in theory, if Congress had a massive amount of resources to do all the focus on all the areas they wanted to, they wouldn't need lobbyists at all um, right. under that scenario. Uh, so can you talk about, you know, the, the legislative capacity questions that you've you've posed and what have you found in that in that regard? Yeah. So this is another area where in uh, in social science, uh, um, it's it's been a, a particularly sort of underemphasized or or, or under understood uh, um, uh, aspect of uh, of the policymaking process, and in particular Congress, where my discipline has made leaps and bounds in the past 30, 40 years, is really understanding, you know, the, the, the costs and benefits and constraints and trade-offs of different, how different rules work and how uh, institutional structures work and thinking about, you know, decision veto points and, and the role of political party leaders. And it's, we've really made a lot of advances in understanding Congress is more than just like happenstance going about doing its its business, um, but that that hyper focus on rules that that has uh, uh, informed us a lot about how things work and also the incentives that parties have to differentiate themselves, which is really underlying the polarization that we've witnessed in the past 20, 30 years. Um, what has really not been uh, observed as much as it was probably in in say the the uh, 1960s and 1970s when, when scholars were looking in Congress is how does the day-to-day -day operation uh, of uh, uh, the, the particular kinds of offices in, in Congress work, right? So uh, the average American probably thinks of Congress as one big monolith, but it's it's not. What Congress is, it's a, it's a collection of, uh, of both, of course, it's separated into two chambers, which are completely independent from each other. They don't tell each other how to do their, their work. Um, even within those chambers, there are party offices, uh, party leader offices that have their own sort of resources and autonomy. 
There are congressional committees where the so-called work of Congress gets done that uh, operate with a lot of, uh, lot of autonomy. Uh, um, and, and 535 are actually 540 members, if you include the five uh, uh, members of the House that, that don't have a formal vote, uh, um, that have their own sort of operations. They have their own office, they have their own budgets, they have their own, they hire their own staff in, in, in particular. And if we think about it that way, while these like larger political forces that are that are sort of driving the, the gridlock and the dysfunction and the, and the uh, political polarization between the parties uh, that, that, that we're witnessing, the, the, the question about well in this under as the political context changes for Congress to do whatever it needs to do or wants to do, how have members and committees and party leaders inside Congress changed how they allocate their own resources? To achieve their goals, right? So if, if I'm an economist and I'm looking at a Fortune 500 company, I'm going to look at their 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 balance sheet and see where they're spending their money and and where their investments are and and, and that's going to tell me what their priorities are, right? Um, well, same thing with Congress. I can look at how do they go about spending their money, and what does that tell us about uh, um, about politics and, and about at least what members of Congress, without saying it uh, it out loud. What does that tell us about what they believe the legislature ought to be doing? And so there's, generally speaking, Nelson Polsby, a, a, a famous political scientist, uh, really said that there's, in the world, there's really two kinds of legislatures. It's probably an oversimplification, but uh, the first legislature would be a transformative one, one that solves problems, it, uh, you know, uh, ends hunger, it fights wars, it uh, makes economies grow. And, uh, and, and improves the human condition, uh, what have you. And the other version is one of a, a legislature as an arena. It is, a, it is merely a place where, uh, um, where voices can be heard. It, the goal is not to sort of achieve some outcome other than to simply uh, uh, have voices uh, uh, heard. And uh, neither one is necessarily better or, or worse than the other, but how that informs us is it tells us what Congress is, uh, it helps us understand the, the motives and incentives uh, behind Congress and, uh, and, and by looking at how they allocate their resources, it can tell us what kind of legislature it wants to be or its members want it to be. Do, do they want it to be transformative or do they want it to be an arena? And the worst way to answer that question is to ask a member of Congress. You know, if you ask a member of Congress, what do you, you know, what, what is your goal and what, what are you trying to do now that you've been elected to their op to this office, they will almost to a T tell you, I'm here to solve problems on behalf of my constituents uh, uh, and serve the American people. Well, they can say that uh, on, on one day, and, and but I want to observe their behavior in, in order to really de to, to determine, are, are, the, are you there to solve problems or are you there uh, uh, to do something else? And uh, um, so I, I think in, in recent years, in recent decades, uh, um, I think the answer is to do something else. It is more to, uh, um, uh, the, the simple way of, of, of observing this is the day after the election uh, is over, members of Congress are thinking about the next election. They're not necessarily thinking about, okay, now that I'm in office, what problems do I solve? And uh, um, of course, they're not going to tell you that, right? Because they have no re-election incentive to do so. So, um, so in, in uh, how I got to this question was stemming from, uh, uh, ironically, my work on revolving door lobbyists and trying to think about what that relationship is between 
uh, uh, the, the world of specialized special interests and, and, and Capitol Hill, one of the conclusions we drew there was, uh, just as, as you, you intimated uh, going into this, was that if you reduce the government's reliance on outside expertise by increasing its own internal expertise, then we, we become less concerned about what those relationships are. And uh, um, so then that just opens up uh, a very straightforward empirical question is how is Congress spending its money today versus how it spent its money 20 and 30 years ago, right? So what changes has these broader, have these broader political forces of polarization and, and in particular heightened uh, uh, um, competition, electoral competition between the parties? Uh, what does that mean? So <clears throat> I've got, done a couple of different things here. Uh, um, one's primarily uh, 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 we've looked at, and one of the best ways uh, to, to get some insight on, on this is it is public information, uh, um, uh, how members of Congress spend their money, especially on their employee payrolls. And uh, that information has recently been digitized from 2000 on and, and uh, working with a group of, of, of colleagues, uh, and we digitized some that went back even before 2000 to really look at some questions of how has this changed over time? So um, in, in, in a recent paper, in a, in a much, in a broader project, we, we asked this question, uh, of like how, especially in particular individual members, we, we limited our scope to the House of Representatives just because we didn't have the time and energy to, to do otherwise, uh, um, was how are, are they spending money differently today than members of Congress worked 30 years ago? And the answer is absolutely yes. And uh, um, back in the day when I worked uh, on the Hill as, uh, as, a, as a young, you know, just, just outside, of, uh, just out of college, uh, a student, Members of Congress tended to spend the majority of their available public resources, taxpayer dollars, on, on, on staff with policy expertise. So the job of, uh, of staff, like when I moved to, to Washington in, in, in 1998, was we had a policy portfolio and I monitored policy and I, I came up with recommendations about uh, uh, bills to, to co-sponsor or amendments to legislation and, and whatnot. And that required me to have some a certain amount of expertise, and we had one person in the office who served as our press secretary, and the, the job there was to sort of monitor how the media was speaking back in the district and nationally and 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 whatnot. Um, well, now you fast forward, and what uh, the, this disbursement data is is telling us is that uh, um, folks like me, the legislative policy type folks, uh, there in, in that office there was five of us that did uh, um, legislative work. There's now on average going to be two people in a, in a member of Congress's office, two or three. Um, now, instead of having one press secretary, you have a communications director, you have a social media manager, you have a constituent communications person, right? So what they've done, even though the, the, the pie has not changed necessarily, they've reallocated that pie away from policy work and more towards communications and uh, public relations uh, uh, work. Now, what that tells me is that uh, a Congress, what that means is that Congress is less concerned about solving public problems through oversight and investigation and, uh, uh, and, and, and the normal sort of legislative process and become much more concerned using the, these public dollars for effectively re-election campaigns. And um, so these, these 
activities are certainly important because it is important to keep constituents informed. It's important to keep members of Congress up to date on what the, you know, sort of the general conversation is in, in the public. Uh, um, but it, it's it's been a very stark uh, a shift away from legislative offices acting as uh, as essentially policy shops and uh, uh, shifting to become essentially PR shops uh, uh, on behalf of the member. And largely, uh, um, uh, we think the reason why is, is that back in the 60s and 70s uh, uh, and, and through even the 80s, let's, let, frankly speaking, the Republicans were never going to gain the majority in, in, in the House. Um, it, was, it was just baked into the cake. Um, but as, uh, um, as things shifted, uh, moving into the 90s, the House and also the Senate uh, uh, later became just about every single election, uh, uh, either party could conceivably uh, win or retain the majority, right? And, and you know that's within margins, right? But but it's at least possible. And so they have completely reshifted their focus towards these sort of re-election and, uh, and and messaging activities, uh, um, which leaves very little time, of course, to uh, do the dirty work of studying problems and, and talking to experts. Uh, um, sifting through all this information uh, and, and developing solutions. And then, of course, the hard work of building coalitions to support, uh, to, to build support behind uh, um, any solutions that you come up with. There's still only 24 hours in a day. So uh, um, um, when, you, when you shift from one activity to the next, it, it, it doesn't lead much. And then you add on top of that the fact that the costs of campaigns have become so expensive and so the demand for raising funds uh, now dominates members of Congress time. So even the, the, the rare times that they are in Washington, about half of that time is spent dialing for dollars uh, um, and not in the committee rooms with their, their shirt sleeves rolled up and solving problems. Well, that's one of the problems when we talk about capacity and increasing the budget or increasing salaries. You know, If all that money and all those salaries go to constituent services or PR, then there's no capacity increase in Congress whatsoever. Uh, so I'm curious about your opinion on that and whether you think, you know, and I would even ask a more fundamental question, which is whether any constituent service budget is justified based on what Congress is supposed to be doing. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I'll start with the first, uh, or start with the second part of that. Um, absolutely. I, I do think Congress does have a responsibility to uh, uh, to act as uh, a couple of things that, that are involved in, in constituent service. One is simply communicating unfiltered, unmediated, uh, what that member of Congress is doing. When that member of Congress holds that constitutional office, they have a responsibility. Uh, um, of course, they're going to frame that in a way that's going to make them look good, right? They're going to claim responsibility and credit for good things and uh, deflect and blame others for, for, for the bad things. Um, but I, I don't think, you know, full stop taking that away is really going to serve uh, 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 the general public. It's, it's not going to serve uh, um, um, voters, potential voters, uh, uh, their, their interests. The more we know, uh, I think the better. But uh, uh, the, more, the thornier issue here then is this idea of, okay, well, what if we uh, uh, increased uh, uh, members' budgets, right? So, so with the hopes that they, they would then, you know, recalculate how they're going to allocate these uh, uh, th these, these resources. Um, and we actually asked this question. So uh, um, in, in 2017, uh, 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 several of us, which ultimately came out as our, our book, Congress Overwhelmed, um, but along, along with Alexander Furness and uh, Alex Hertel-Fernandez, 
we, we uh, engaged in this large scale study where, that was really took two parts. One was uh, um, interviewing about 60 folks on uh, a senior staff on Capitol Hill. So we're talking chiefs of staff, uh, members and uh, staffers, high level staffers and party leadership and committee offices and, uh, and, and even some former members of Congress. Um, and, uh, and also we sent a survey to generally uh, uh, everyone in Congress and, 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 the, and we asked many questions, but among them in the interviews, uh, with senior staff who have literally budget responsibilities so we know that they think about these things is uh, I, I sort of asked this sort of you know if I could wave a magic wand and, and double your budget tomorrow how would you reallocate that, that, that money and almost to a T they would say they said exactly what you you're concerned about is they would just put more into what it is that they're already doing which and, and when we ask this more generally across a, a, a random sample of staffers uh, um, it was really the same thing, except really specifically that their, their number one priority would be to increase wages in existing salaries, you know, for existing positions, and and um, because that has generally declined over time, and and there's a lot of reasons for that that we can get into. Um, so that doesn't solve the problem, right? Simply adding more, uh, it, it would be effectively adding more fuel to the fire, right? So so that tells me. Um, Members of Congress and, and the committees, uh, they have near full autonomy about how they go about spending uh, um, taxpayer dollars uh, in, in their official duties. Um, now, within constraints, they can't go out and buy a sports car or whatever, right? But but um, within within you know certain reasonable constraints, um, I think we have to ask: Well, is that the right way to to go about running the legislature, right? If if we're allowing it, it to me, it's a real a, a collective action failure. If, if you're allowing 535 members of Congress and 40 some committees and, and who knows how many party leadership offices all to make decisions completely independent from each other about how to allocate taxpayer money, um, I think it's very inefficient, right? So I think one way to do that would be to uh, institutionalize exactly how, you know, different pots of money being spent on different types of activities, right? So that would, would give them a certain constraints, right? To say only X percent of your budget can go towards these sort of PR activities, right? Or, or those activities can only take place in a certain time relative to the campaign. Or, you know, there are existing rules in Congress that uh, already govern th things like this, right? So I, that's unlikely because members of Congress don't want to give up that, that uh, decision-making authority. Well, my my response to that is is too bad, right? The, the money doesn't belong to the member of Congress; it belongs to the district or the state, uh, and it belongs to us. And and I, I don't think it is completely unreasonable for the public to have a say uh, uh, um, about how we reasonably allocate uh, allocate that money, uh, um, and and to constrain them a bit, right? We constrain members of Congress and government officials' behavior in many ways, right? They can't take bribes; they can't do you know they can't engage in conflicts of interest. Well, they also maybe ought not be able to spend taxpayer money uh, uh, to effectively get uh, to, for their own reelection reasons. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, when you think about how that could be done, you centralize a lot of the decision making in the body um, versus give it you know, to individual members to spend. Mm -hmm. And then what would be the allocation ultimately for those PR positions? Um, it's an interesting question. Yeah. So, you know, 
what about the the committees then? I mean, a lot of, you could double a staff of committees, and theoretically, um, that would be a retention of expertise and and uh, capacity. Is that is that an option you think would be preferable to just increasing the individual member allocation? I think it could be, and I also think this is an area where I can't say for sure yet. I know there's there's sort of work in progress of, of trying to answer these questions. Um, but from, from what I can gather, at least anecdotally, from some of my uh, uh, interviews and, and, and speaking with folks, is that um, from the outside, we tend to, uh, you know, we have this very sort of textbook view of Congress that the committee is where the work gets done, right? That's where the bills are written uh, um, and whatnot. Although that's, that's technically true, um, committees today and the committee staff uh, of today are very different than in their heyday of the 1970s. Right. So in the post-reform Congress uh, um, in the 1970s, where power started accumulating in party leaders, but also it was the era of so-called subcommittee government, where uh, the, the idea there was within the Democratic Party, they were trying, trying to essentially claw back some party from, from long-standing committee chairs that just sort of ran their committees like a fiefdom. And, and if they chose not to do anything, they wouldn't do anything. Uh, um, and if you look back at, at that time, it was sort of a glorious chaos, right? You had a lot of subcommittees that might've been uh, duplicative. You may have had uh, uh, these, these seemingly inefficient ways of, of, they're all sort of sort of investigating different problems and developing different solutions uh, without talking to, to each other. Um, but then it would ultimately be funneled up through the political party leaders who would then essentially play traffic cop between whose ideas got to rise to the top and, and whose, dis whose didn't. Well, now it's, it's a completely different world. Now it's very top down, right? The party leaders essentially write the bills themselves. They bring the committee members in to the room for, the, for their advice, but it's the, you know, Obamacare wasn't written by uh, the, the uh, House Commerce Committee. It was written by the speaker, right? And, and, uh, um, and then, then passed through the House Energy and Commerce Committee, right? So, um, so, so back to your question, if we were to double the budgets at, at, at committees, I don't know that that would necessarily solve the problem, just like in, in member offices, because committees are now engaged in social media and in, uh, in, in the sort of arena legislature activities, um, because Congress just isn't working on legislative activities as much. It's not to say that they're not doing anything, right? Um, but there is less oversight. There is less investigation. There are fewer uh, uh, experts giving testimony. So if you double a committee's budget, uh, um, chances are they're just going to double the allocations that they have now. They're going to improve their PR shop, uh, and member and the members of the committee, you know, especially in the majority party, will just simply use that to fill in where they can't use that that money in, in their own in their own personal office. So I, I think again, uh, um, I, I I I would say it would be uh, probably a good idea to to increase uh, uh, um, uh, internally the, the the resources that that they can that committees have access to, but also to do so in a much more careful and thoughtful way, and not simply uh, allow it to become sort of funny money for uh, uh, the committee chairs and the subcommittee chairs. So I, I think very similar similar problems uh, um, at the committee level uh, um, um, with the individual uh, uh, member level and you know for them to change their mind about that we, uh, we, we have to sort of change think about exactly what their uh, uh, what their incentive structure what what their trade-offs are as politicians when they're pursuing re-election uh, um, 
can we get to a place where uh, their efforts to get reelected are again tied back to the policy activities and the oversight uh, that they're supposed to be doing and not necessarily uh, putting out the, the, the latest and greatest tweet. It sounds like in order to get the committees to do their job effectively, you have to defund the uh, leadership uh, in, at the same time. It, it could be. We, we have a, a curious situation in Congress where, where sort of authority and, and power has centralized uh, into the party leadership structure. Um, again, I think that's tied, and this comes from Francis Lee of Princeton, who's written uh, on this, that, that she uh, um, that's tied to this idea of electoral competition, right? If I'm the Speaker of the House or if I'm the minority leader, well, I'm going to be judged at how we do next uh, election. So they're going to orient everything that way. And, and uh, um, which has effectively broken down this idea of the division of labor, right? So rank and file members are taking orders from the party leader about go get reelected and do everything you can to get to that so that we can retain the majority next time. And uh, um, rather, I think it could be a better allocation of resources if we said, okay, well, party leaders, sure, you're absolutely responsible for the party brand, for getting the message bills out, uh, uh, and for coordinating uh, uh, that message. In the meantime, while they're while the party leaders are taking on that responsibility, uh, um, members of Congress should be, uh, uh, um, you know, investigating the Pentagon or trying to think about what uh, uh, what the next uh, uh, great solution is to hunger or or uh, or homelessness. Right? And 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 these days, those problems are getting brushed aside uh, um, because their their uh, uh, their time is being taken up with one goal in mind. Uh, um, I tend to think that in a large organization, uh, um, uh, it, done well and done efficiently, it, Congress could chew and walk gum, or chew gum and walk at the same time, right? Uh, just like Fortune 500 companies do, and and uh, but right now it's just not uh, uh, it's not uh, designed that way, and uh, I don't think that their members of Congress are frankly creative enough to try to spend enough of their own time in the brief time that they're there to try to rethink how Congress organizes and operates itself. You know, I've had Mickey Edwards on the on the program previously, and there's yeah. him and a few others, you know, have, uh, and I'm sympathetic to this, this notion that you could have a speaker uh, who is not a member, right? Uh, maybe a nonpartisan speaker um, who is really just, um, making the institution work better as a whole rather than taking partisan positions, which I find to be an odd situation. Mm -hmm. um, what's, what's your opinion on that, that idea? I, well, first of all, I, I find it hard to believe that there could be any such thing in, in such a position as a person being nonpartisan. Uh, um, in a liberal democracy, uh, the, majority, uh, uh, the majority rules. Right? And, and uh, for the most part, and we can, we can talk about some things like the Senate uh, uh, separately, but uh, um, I think to an extent uh, uh, that model is much more like the British House of Commons, right? where, where the speaker uh, uh, um, in, in, in that institution is, you know, holds this hat of, of sort of like the referee, right? And, and, and tries to uh, uh, manage the debate uh, without fear or favor. Right, and and I think that's an attractive idea, but I I I find it difficult to believe that members of Congress would want to go along with that. Right, so uh, party leaders only have power to the extent that the individual members are going to delegate that power to them. So, uh, um, even though we might be able to create a position like that, 
I think it would largely be a position in name only. Um, so that would be one thing. And, and, and the, the, the second thing here is, is um, in, at least in the House of Representatives, in some ways there actually is an institutionalized position uh, for things like this. It's the chief administrative officer. The CIO was created back in the 1990s, part of the uh, Republican uh, contract with America, or at least stemming from it. Uh, um, that tried to move some of this sort of day-to-day -day operational stuff into more of an institutionalized office that whose job it is to sort of manage, keep the lights on, allocate offices and, and, and sort of things like that. No different than the facilities and management folks here at my university, right? Uh, um, the problem there is that uh, um, there ought to be, I think, a happy medium between the sort of nonpartisan speaker that actually has some, some power and influence and the chief administrative officer who doesn't do much more than, you know, uh, uh, you know, sign the contract for the uh, for, for the vendors uh, that, that serve in the cafeteria, right? So, uh, um, I, I think maybe some kind of hybrid uh, uh, position there, or at least uh, um, some sort of, uh, perhaps the Speaker of the House could take a little bit more uh, uh, of a management role over some of these things, um, and. Uh, Long story short here is I think the CAO, the, the chief administrative officer, can't tell a member of Congress how to spend her money, right? They'll allocate the money, but, but they have no power to do so. And I, th I think if for a, a real sort of centralized management to improve the efficiency uh, of, of legislative capacity, you would have to have a, a position like that that had a little bit more teeth and that was able to constrain members' uh, uh, um, 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 budgeting and, and behavior. Just, uh, a, a little bit more. So um, I, I think that that uh, Mickey Edwards hypothetical idea is, is really good. And he's, a, he's of course, a, a, you know, a great institutionalist um, who I admire a, a lot. Um, but I also don't, don't think, you know, in day-to-day -day practice, I can imagine having some sort of, uh, um, you know, politics-free speaker of the house. Because uh, um, if you do, it's, that person's just going to be replaced then by the majority leader who will be the de facto speaker today. So uh, uh, um, I think there are probably other ways uh, um, at getting it, uh, sort of some intermediary uh, solution. Well, let's move on to the, the subject of um, this general notion of political elites and the flow of information. I think this is an area of, of your study now. Um, and obviously it's all related to the things we're just discussing. So, mm -hmm. you know, what have you, what have you looked at in this area, how information flows, how do, how do people who are really making the decisions get their information and how do they use it? Yeah. So, uh, um, this is largely coming from sort of the, the, the general field of political psychology in, in, in my discipline, who for many years really made giant leaps forward of understanding how voters make decisions about how. Uh, people consume political media uh, and whatnot, but but mu much of the focus of this uh, this area has been on like sort of the average person out there, right? And and largely, uh, um, uh, the, the the big sort of takeaways there is, is uh, the average voter, the average person. We don't think a whole great deal about the the ins and outs of how government works and how my policies might affect me and and what my interests are. Um, we instead, a lot like when we're consumers, we, we use quick and dirty shortcuts, right? I don't have the time or energy to think deeply about, uh, you know, how healthcare policy works or, or, or what kinds of, uh, uh, you know, uh, COVID mitigation strategies we ought, we ought to adopt. Instead, what I do is rely on shortcuts, 
that that uh, and we do this all over the place i go to the supermarket and when i'm walking down the cereal aisle i have lots of options right and, and largely what i'm going to do especially one of my kids are with me i'm going to grab the one that has the most sugar and make them happy right and because there's a big brand name on front of it um we do the same thing in politics we we look at party labels or we look at sort of ideological labels and, and that serves as our shortcut so that i can then go on get on with my day and and, and make a choice well the the idea here of trying to look at political elites congressional staff lobbyists bureaucrats members of congress what have you is they do the same thing right we, we have this sort of i think there is an implicit mythology out there that those who who work professionally in politics and public policy and that that there's uh, um the, the professional nature of it means that how they go about making decisions is a lot careful and deliberative um that they you know uh, weigh all the pros and cons of all the different uh, options that are out there and we have this sort of idealistic view of uh, uh, that that as if members of Congress are sort of like monks in a monastery trying to study the intricate details uh, of a policy. That's not what they do. It's it's more like the cereal aisle. Right? Members of Congress, they're making decisions all the time, uh, uh, whether it's policy related about how to communicate with their constituents, what you know, what meeting to go to next. Right? If you look at a member of Congress's schedule, they have you know four things happening at the same time. Right. So, and that's true off the hill too, right? In, in think tanks and and in newsrooms uh, um, and in federal bureaucracies, that human beings we process information using sort of tried and true shortcuts. Most of the time, those shortcuts are pretty good, right? They, they get us generally to the right place. But what they also do is introduce biases, right? There are some times when we we make a decision, we overlook or ignore information that might may have changed our mind. And so what I'm interested in is uh, uh, the extent to which uh, um, um, political elites are actually doing this, the, or adopting these kind of shortcut behaviors, just like voters in, in, in the, uh, the election booth or consumers in, in the supermarket, right? So uh, um, <clears throat> again, it's sort of early on and a number of uh, uh, colleagues are looking at, at some of these things, but, but for example, a couple of years ago, we, or yeah, just two years ago, we we did a survey of about 4,500 political elites in, in Washington and asked them uh, any number of questions. And, and um, one study that we uh, we embedded in that in that survey was was a, was an experiment that uh, um, essentially asked uh, uh, political elites about uh, essentially their opinions on several issues. Right. So it could be climate change or. Uh, Healthcare spending or, or or whatnot, right? And so we did that in the first part of the the, the survey, and then later, somewhere else, later in the survey, uh, um, we asked them, "What do you think the general public thinks about these issues?" Right? The idea by separating them, it kind of breaks it up in in their mind. And uh, what we found, um, this is based on some people did similar studies uh, of congressional staff, and ultimately they found that 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 they they, they thought the general public was more conservative than it actually is. Well, we found something very different from uh, particularly these unelected elites that don't have this re-election motivation. Instead, th they believe the general public thinks what they think, right? So their bias is, you know, John Q. Public and Jane Q. Public thinks what I think about climate change because the world in which they live, the people who they talk to, 
uh, um, is frankly very unrepresentative of, of the average person. Um, so it was not it was neither in a liberal or a conservative direction, but it was the, 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 the bias that's entering the, their mind and the shortcut that they're using is, is literally looking in the mirror about thinking about what what other people think. Right. So uh, here's one example of uh, essentially taking these these highly professional, well experienced, highly educated uh, uh, political professionals and sort of catching them in the act of using these cognitive shortcuts. And, and we think that this has a lot of implications for uh, um, uh, how they seek out information in order to inform their own sort of uh, uh, policy decisions and, and, and activities. Uh, um, but it also has a lot of uh, implications for uh, uh, policy and political deliberation more broadly that, you know, we can think of in an idealized world, uh, uh, political deliberation, we should, you know, look at a lot of diverse perspectives and, and incorporate a lot of different ideas uh, um, and then ultimately reach the, the most reasoned choice. Um, but that's not possible if what it is you're doing is automatically cutting off certain bits of information because it, it just simply takes less time and cognitive energy to rely on, on your gut. And, and your gut might get, again, your gut might get you there uh, uh, most of the time, but sometimes it might introduce uh, a, a bias and, and you can end up making bad decisions. Yeah, I think some of that comes from the conception of representation, right? Um, mm -hmm. So if I am narrowly construing my duty as a representative to just the groups of people that elected me or think like me, then that's going to be a natural, natural crutch. And, mm -hmm. you know, similarly, you know, there's this concept of the dialogue in Congress, right? Debate, dialogue, in mm -hmm. theory, that's the idea that should poke through some of those assumptions, right? To give some unwelcome information into your worldview. Uh, right. But that's also, you know, broken down, fortunately, uh, in Congress. Yeah, I, I think so. And I, I think that this is exactly where it is related to uh, uh, some of the work I've been doing on, on legislative capacity. The, the, the staffers who work on the Hill are really smart, highly motivated, and, uh, and are genuinely motivated for good public service uh, for, for, for the most, most part. And, and you'd think that that alone ought to produce sort of the highest quality of dialogue and, and, and deliberation because they ought to be seeking all these out, but because they are so inundated by information. It's often referred to uh, uh, on the Hill as drinking from the fire hose, that there is so much information and so little time, and also not unrelated to the fact that there's so few resources uh, to, to, to back them up, that they're that much more likely to rely on shortcuts like, uh, uh, um, uh, and, and that typically in, in a world of, uh, of polarized political parties, right, that that means they're going to automatically shut off the other side and ignore the other side. And that's uh, some, some other uh, research that we've, some other things that we've uncovered in, in our in our research is, is that uh, we embedded an experiment in another survey with congressional staff. And, and what we end up finding is, is not so much that they're not willing to grant access to uh, donors or constituents or, or, or lobbyists, but that after they grant that access, they're 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 only inclined to use or, or or interpret information as being good or sound if it's coming from a party aligned source. Right. So anything else, even regardless of what the substance it is, 
that party and ideology are, 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 the, are, are gobbling up all of their attention. It's, the, it, it's sort of like the, the master key to solve every problem. And, uh, and I think as it turns out, I think a, a lot of, uh, uh, um, even the average person out there is gonna think that it's not the solution to the problem, it is the problem, right? So, uh, um, so I, I think that what some of this might help inform us is not just throwing money at the problem and hiring more staff, uh, um, but to try to rethink about how do we set up processes for that are, are allowing even uncomfortable ideas in and uh, uh, ideas that I uh, specifically disagree with, uh, because you know the 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 response to to, uh, to to speech is counter speech, right? The response to ideas is countervailing ideas, and and that is I think often being lost in in uh, um, on the process that we have these today. All right, well, with that, maybe we can move on to the second phase of our discussion where I ask you questions I've asked everybody else on the program and so that ultimately we can compare results. So uh, are you ready for the next phase? Sure. Uh, you know, the first question is in this line is, what do you think congressional representation should mean? That is, a, um, that's a complex question. Uh, um, I think, in order to in order to understand, I think we want to break this down in, in, in some ways. I, I think for the most part, we presume congressional representation has to be tied to voters and constituents. I think that's false, however, right? And and there's there's years of of, of uh, studies in Congress is trying to understand that is just because a member of Congress represents a line drawn arbitrarily on a map somewhere, whether that line is a state border or or a congressional district. Um, Districts anymore are, 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 are so large and members are so detached, they can never actually fully know what their genuine uh, geographic constituency is. So even though they might want to uh, faithfully represent what they think their, their constituency is, it's impossible. Uh, um, so in actuality, what members of Congress, they, they create a vision in their mind about what they believe their constituency actually is, and it's always false. By definition, it's going to be uh, it's going to be selective. It's going to be the people that they come in contact with most. It's going to be, uh, and that is going to include party activists and donors and 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 uh, uh, people who call a congressional office to complain. Right? And and um, so at, at some level, that's important, but but it's also not very helpful, right? Uh, you know, in some respect, members of Congress ought to make difficult decisions with the best information available and wherever the political chips fall, uh, so be it, right? And, and but that's not necessarily the attitude. So I, instead, I think what, uh, uh, what good representation in a legislative setting ought to be is, is members of Congress being forthright and honest with, them, with themselves about who, the, who and what they believe that they represent and uh, trying to stick for that with that as faithfully as possible, and then voters can judge on that. Right? So, so what I mean here is uh, members of Congress, depending on the policy issue, are going to, in their mind's eye, have a different sort of uh, a set of fictional constituencies that, that who they believe are be, going to be affected by, uh, by that, uh, by any kind of policy decision. Right? So if it's healthcare policy, it's a different set of people. If it's uh, 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 national security policy, it's going to be a whole uh, a different set of, of folks who are going to be impacted. And, uh, um, and I think it's okay to make decisions with an eye towards these identifiable and, and knowable, you know, sub constituencies, and then go explain that 
generally to the public at large. Uh, um, uh, right now, I think members of Congress are afraid to publicly recognize that they, they that, that when they make decisions, they're doing so for a narrow set of people uh, or, or groups or organizations. Uh, um, but I think it would be healthy to for them to be a little bit more transparent about that to both themselves and and uh, 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 to, to to voters. Um, and then I think also uh, we can't ignore identity in in representation, right? So uh, um, uh, uh, Congress remains. Uh, 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 remains a, a, a members only club of primarily white wealthy uh, um, men right and and um, that has taken that has changed quite a bit in in my adult life uh, for the better Congress is becoming much more diverse but it's also far from being genuinely representative of a, a large number of ideological groups uh, race and ethnicity and gender are absolutely important uh, uh, gender expansive definitions are, are absolutely critical because it's what real life is, but also geography and economic interests, right? So members of, uh, members of Congress are, come, come to their job uh, um, with a great deal of wealth and usually with experience in some kind of professional setting uh, in which they earned a lot of money. And they might believe that that experience is, has exposed them to a wide variety of viewpoints when uh, um, frankly, it's very rare for a member of Congress to have driven a truck or worked in a factory or, 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 or cleaned a hotel room. And, and I think that that's another uh, um, area where I think representation through experience, uh, um, and descriptive representation uh, um, could, uh, could be an area for improvement. And I think the parties uh, could, could, both parties could benefit from trying to uh, expand what they, uh, who they believe that are, are, are sort of Come, fall under their large tent uh, of of uh, of what these party coalitions are uh, um, that might so be. I'm, I'm trying to understand a little bit. You know, this is a question about what you think it should be, <clears throat> rather than what it is. Um, I understand the the problem of a member never knowing really what's going on in the district. It's an impossibility, um, and I'm sympathetic to this idea that even if you spent every day of every minute of the every minute of the year you know shaking hands with your constituents you're still going to be in the realm of error to understand what's really going on with those constituents so i agree that the the member has to have some kind of um some kind of imagination to really understand what what who who their constituents are but i guess the question i have for you is do they represent you know the the this fictitious group they're creating is it everyone every human being in the district is it their is it their primary voters? Is it, you know, the medical boards? You know, yeah. in the should question to you is, should the member represent everyone or some subset of that everyone? I think uh, the member should have, I'll go back to the word, the, the capacity to at least uh, um, have, uh, have the ability or, or to, to represent a variety of different groups, whether it's the medical boards or the, the CEOs or, or, or the laborers or, or the, uh, you know, uh, um, the retirees, uh, what, what have you, right? So um, they themselves, it's an impossibility as, as we, we, we can get to. So I think, how, how do you bridge that gap between the life experiences and knowledge and, and, and relationships that an individual member of Congress has representing a broad and diverse district or, or state well, I think one way to do that is to have a, a staff that might be representative, right? Um, um, have those experiences themselves 
you, you, we can't expect every member of Congress to you know, go back in time and, and uh, relive their lives in, in order to be a, a representative. So I think what they could do is surround themselves by people uh, um, who might have different expertise, backgrounds, life experiences, uh, um, uh, 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 and, and, uh, and, and a variety of, uh, of different kinds of identities. So that I might personally not know if I'm a member of Congress, I might not know what it's like to be a woman, right? But if I could have a, a, a professional staff who are uh, expert on uh, it, women's perspectives on certain policy issues, it's imperfect, but it's better than me filling in the blanks. So I think one way uh, to, to get to this sort of should question, uh, how should uh, um, members of Congress represent them, uh, represent their constituents, it, it is, I think they should closely surround themselves by a, a much more diverse and, and representative uh, a, a group of people. All right, next question is, how should, uh, how would your ideal Congress allocate its time? And this means DC versus district, you know, legislation versus oversight versus dialing for dollars, as you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I mean, if, if I had my way, uh, um, an ideal Congress would be, would hyper-focus on, uh, uh, on public policy outside, uh, you know, sort of this defined uh, campaign season. Of course, I'm not naive. The campaign season is every day, right? So I, I think a better allocation of, of time uh, um, at minimum would be more time in Washington doing Washington work. Right now, what happens is members of Congress arrive on a Tuesday morning uh, in a legislative week and are uh, itching to get back on the plane by Thursday afternoon. That means they have all this stuff to do in a, in a three-day work week. Now, keep in mind that I'm not one of those people who believes that like, oh, that means the rest of the time they're on vacation, right? Uh, they're, they're back in the district doing very important work. But uh, um, what I would like to see is uh, much larger chunks of time. Uh, members of Congress shouldn't leave Washington for weeks or months at a time, right? They all have second residences, right? They earn a heck of a lot of money to be able to pay for that too, right? And, and so, uh, um, so I, I, I'm not con concerned so much uh, about that, but this is a big change that happened in the 1990s. And again, this is related to that electoral competition world that we live in. It's every spare moment's gotta be directed towards that. So one chunk of time would be to spend considerable long periods of time, including the weekends, and they might not have to go into the office, but don't go home, right? Um, they have staff back in the district to do that. Um, and then when they're in Washington, when they're in session, they shouldn't have to be able to walk across the street to the RNC and the DNC to go dial for dollars, right? And that's where, uh, where much of the problem exists. So members of Congress are estimated to be spending at least half of their time while in Washington working on a, a campaign fundraising. And I, I think like many state legislatures out there, um, it would be possible to come up with a system of when you're in Washington, you are, are in this set period of time where we're doing legislative and budget work, uh, um, that's what you have to be doing. We're, we're going to cut the faucets off from the, from the donors, focus our attention on this. It's perfectly understandable and reasonable that they have to spend some time raising money for expensive campaigns and, and engaging in campaigns. Campaigns are healthy for democracy, right? Um, but I think we could reallocate the time uh, um, into much larger chunks uh, uh, to be able to, to, to focus on those things. And, and 
and, and I think it'd be okay to give members certain time to be able to hold fundraisers and and or and go back in their district and uh, uh, and, and go to the Kiwanis Club and and whatnot. But uh, um, but but I think that that would be a much uh, a better allocation. So right now, I think less than half of their time is spent in Washington, and of that time in Washington, less than half of their time is spent uh, doing lawmaking duties. Um, I, I think that could be pretty easily changed. Right. Next one is uh, how how should debate, deliberation, or dialogue occur or be structured in Congress? You know, should it be the floor, committees, behind closed doors, out in the open, in the bar? You know, yeah. where should where should all this discussion and some of the thing you mentioned earlier about contrary ideas? You know, where should they be aired? Yeah, I, I think uh, um, this is a uh, an area where there's a lot of different solutions, and and Congress ought to look outside of politics uh, for the solution here. Um, I, I think those who study organizations and companies and, and how employees work together and how teams work together, uh, um, you can, the most efficient and uh, a productive uh, organization for working is, is to have sort of small groups and small working groups and, and teams. Or as originally envisioned, committee, congressional committees were intended to do that, right? The logic behind a congressional committee is divide up the labor, right? And, and this committee works on healthcare, this committee works on national security, what, what, what have you. But now these committees are so large that they are themselves too big, right? So I, I think a, a much better way to do this would be to have small working groups, each a, a given a, a certain problem, right? Um, and that those working groups ought to be uh, uh, somewhat representative of a diversity of viewpoints. And it would, should be okay for some of these working groups to be duplicative. It, it, it's, it, you know, there's uh, um, value in redundancy sometimes, right? A lot of times in, in, in certain operations, right? You, you, you wanna be more efficient. Uh, um, but in, in, in other times, especially when it comes to solving public problems that are extremely complex, uh, um, it, it, it is useful to uh, um, uh, take different bites of the same apple. Uh, um, from different perspectives. So I think it would be, and, and, and we know this from even observing members of Congress that, you know, ideological opposite members, when, when they actually do get in a room and talk to each other, they can be very productive. Uh, um, and most legislation is still bipartisan. Uh, um, it's, it, they, they typically have sponsors from both parties and getting votes from both parties. And, and uh, um, the problem is there's not enough of that. I think that, that uh, because of the limits on their time and their, and their constraints that they're not, uh, they don't have the time to be in the room with people they might otherwise disagree with and get to know. Uh, um, and, you know, whether that's, uh, uh, you know, at, at a bar or restaurant uh, uh, in the evening or in, in, in an office room uh, during the day, I, I think it would be, uh, um, I, I'm less concerned about that as, as, uh, um, as it is a, a dedication and a commitment to uh, uh, spending a significant amount of time surrounding yourselves with folks who you might disagree with uh, um, so that you can literally hear the other side. All right, next question is, uh, what fundamental institutional improvement should Congress make within 50 years? That's a, uh, um, here's a big question. I think uh, generally, I, I sort of, two responses, because this is a very sort of macro level question. So my, my response will be at the very macro level. One would be outside of Congress. Congress is a product of American politics and right? how Congress goes about doing its job. Um, and I think in, in, in political science, 
when you look at other countries and other legislatures, uh, um, the near consensus among political scientists is that the worst way to run a, 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 a run a nation state is a presidential system with a federalist structure uh, and a bicameral legislature, right? and, and the exact system that that we have. That that you know uh, uh, we're not necessarily going to uh, uh, redo that, but with only two political parties. What we can change is that two political party aspect and, and most uh, uh, now how we get there a lot of political scientists and political analysts are going to disagree with about how you might implement but if we could get to a place where uh, um, both of the political parties at any given time are going to be effectively dominated by an internal faction if we could get to a place where those factions are actually separate parties uh, um, and that were, would then be essentially forced to uh, work together in coalitions whether it's on a specific bill or more generally is setting up the organization of the government. Um, I think multi-party uh, systems are not flawless, right? But, but certainly much better. So the number one thing to change would be to move towards something like a proportional representation system, which out, out of which you'd get multiple parties. And then secondly, uh, inside Congress, the sort of macro level uh, 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 question is to reimagine what Congress actually is. Congress, uh, um, uh, basically, the, the way that Congress is organized now is a, a series of solutions that were political problems uh, uh, that needed solving by politicians that are long dead, right? Political parties were invented to, uh, uh, to, to solve, you know, uh, a geographic uh, coalition building back in the, in the 19th century. Committees were in, invented to, to solve sort of divisional labor problems across uh, uh, different parties and with different economic constituencies and different areas, right? We still have these systems and they still, they've been tweaked over time. But uh, um, I, I think in, in, in a 50 year time period, we could easily map out, well, what would be the, 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 the ideal way of setting up a system that would recognize the different tasks that elected members of Congress uh, need to satisfy. They need to, to serve their constituents. They need to communicate with the public. And they need to solve problems and oversee the executive. And right now, all those problems are all solved equally by this mismatch of organizational uh, features inside Congress. And I think if we re-envision about how we might go about doing that, uh, um, we might come up with something similar, but, but I think it would look very different and it would be a lot more fluid so that from Congress to Congress, members, uh, you know, there would be an incentive to change and improve uh, and be more flexible uh, um, over time, just like Fortune 500 companies. If they're not changing, they're going to be dying, right? So uh, um, Congress doesn't work like that. And, and I, I think with a little bit of effort and a little bit of ingenuity and commitment, uh, um, it probably could. All right. Next question is, what book or article most shaped your thinking with respect to congressional reform? <clears throat> Um, two in mind from, from, uh, um, from mentors uh, of mine. First would be uh, Rick Hall's 1996 book, Participation in Congress. Uh, one of my favorite reads when I was in graduate school, because it was the first book as a graduate student I read that actually spoke to my day-to-day -day experience when I was working on the Hill. And really what the innovation of, of this book was, was to move away from looking at Congress and congressional activity and productivity merely as if it's like a factory, a sausage factory, right, with outputs. 
And instead of looking at the outputs, instead looking at what are the, the what's the day-to-day -day inputs that members of Congress are doing. So instead of just looking at roll call votes on bills, which is absolutely important, also let's look at, well, what do member, members of Congress do with their time? Do they, do they attend committee hearings? They don't always. Um, if they attend, do they ask questions? If so, how many? What kinds? You know, are they good or bad questions? Uh, um, and and you know, and exactly, you know, and that tells us a little bit more about how Congress works, right? So that's influenced a, a lot of how uh, um, I've gone about uh, um, looking at, at this information. And I would add a second here, uh, again from mentors of mine, uh, um, Frank Baumgartner and Brian Jones. Um, they have a, a series of of work that that speaks to the policy process through their theory of punctuated equilibrium. But in particular, their mid, I think, 2016 book, if I'm getting the date right, called The Politics of Information, is they really try to take seriously how, from a, from a systems perspective, uh, of thinking about how do governments uh, um, seek out and use and process uh, uh, the information that's available to them. And there are different behavioral ways of managing information. Uh, um, and. Uh, um, and what was really insightful about that for me is that they, they, they show whether it's the administrative side or the executive side or, or the legislative side is that uh, um, the politics of, of information seeking back in the 1970s and 1980s was very different because you had the parties that were their, their themselves, their ideologies did not determine what their outcome was, right? There was sort of overlapping coalitions and that the, how they process information changed over time where they used to look for diverse perspectives um, because studying an issue uh, led to a conclusion. Now, in a world of polarized uh, uh, parties and, and heightened electoral competition, they start with the outcome, what their decision is, and their information uh, seeking process is simply confirmatory. And I think that that tells us a lot and, and uh, um, I think is you know, partly consistent with some of the stuff that I've been talking about today that, that uh, um, that I think is, is really useful and, and helpful and, and uh, um, hopefully other folks are gonna read too. So the last question is really about your future. Like what's, uh, what's in the hopper for your research in the short term and in the long term? Yeah, I think uh, um, generally working on this idea of uh, um, the, the, the information search and use behavior among political elites is uh, really at the top of my agenda now. I'm still of course working on a number of these legislative capacity uh, issue problems, as you know, in the academic world, uh, uh, our production schedule is on a five and six year cycle. And I, so, uh, um, uh, um, but but I, I think uh, um, uh, with a direction of, of really looking at uh, uh, political elites and, and mostly how political elites don't just use information generally, not, you know, because information might be, what do my constituents think about these things or what's public opinion say, but uh, uh, most specifically expertise and expert information. Uh, we live in a world now that we've seen and with the climate crisis and, and with COVID-19 uh, um, uh, of, of you know, many politicians sort of eschewing experts and, and inserting what their own belief systems is uh, on top of that. And so uh, um, one, of the, one of the puzzles I, I think I'm really curious about it is uh, um, I can understand a, uh, an election-oriented politician sort of uh, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, giving you know, waving their hand away at, at information that doesn't agree with what their uh, uh, their re-election message is. I don't understand that as much with sort of a bureaucrat at the FDA or uh, um, a, a a scholar at a think tank. Of, of, of um, and, and you know, why is it that uh, um, 
uh, um, um, other types of political elites who might not be bound by election, uh, um, how do they go about uh, seeking out and using expertise and, and scientific information and other sort of uh, um, um, uh, information and data produced by people with highly specialized skills and, and uh, expert knowledge? Excellent. Well, Professor Lapira, thank you so much for your time. It's been a it's been a pleasure, and best of luck in your future work. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I enjoyed it. Thank you.